Good evening and welcome to We Got Panel Reviews for You. Thank you all very much for joining us. May I start with the usual reminder um, to please consider making a charity donation in lieu of a registration fee. The charities we support, as regular viewers will know, include um, Brian May's Save Me Trust, Environmental um, Crisis, Nature Crisis, Shelter for the Housing Crisis, and of course any of the Ukrainian charities. But please feel free to make a donation to a local charity of your choice if you prefer. Um, we are delighted to welcome today the President, Madam President, Sue Bridge, the 2023 President of the Royal Town Planning Institute. Sue, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, usual questions. Where is from? Um, what are you seen? And what, if anything, are you drinking this evening? Tea in my favourite mug, milk less sugar. Thank you. Uh, and what have you chosen to ask? And my theme is because I'm calling from where I live uh, near Leicester, um, I've chosen textiles and because, of course, Leicester is very famous for the textile industry, and in particular socks, because there used to be a sock factory in the village where I live in. Long gone now, Bramfield Land developed, of course, for housing, um, so that has messages as well. Socks. Socks. Well, well, Sue, we're, we're delighted to have you all. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. As I say to all the guests, please do. Um, if you wish to contribute to any of the discussions on the cases, no obligation, of course. And we're really looking forward to Mary's interview with you in the second half of the show. On the subject of Mary, how are you, my friend? In time, I'm very well. I'm very well. And thank you. Um, well, thank you, we should say, I think, Charlie, for joining us. Uh, <laughs> uh, we should apologise to our listeners for being a little late, but that's because uh, we were waiting for young Charlie here to get himself sorted at uh, Heathrow Airport. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to Sue. And I am in the office drinking some water. Now, socks. Uh -huh. Here are my favourite running socks, exercise biking socks. These socks inspire me uh, and make me feel I'm really fit. Here are my favourite, I'm going on a bike socks. <laughs> if I wear these, I'm going on the beach or I'm hiking in North um, Cornwall. <laughs> Love it. You're not going to, so you're not going to get uh, lost in the dark with those running socks. No. <laughs> um, Chris, you look like a man who's got a nice pair of socks. I, t I do. Uh, they, the presumption has decided to wear them. He's wearing his favourite. Can you see the horses on that? Yeah. It's, the, it's Cheltenham Races uh, next week, uh, just over there, uh, so long as the ground uh, doesn't freeze up, which isn't looking great. I've had. Uh, I've had a complete Greenbelt week. I've been in Tring, just started a five-week Greenbelt inquiry. Then I nipped up to Manchester today when they're doing the site visits to deal with taking land out of the Greenbelt, putting land in the Greenbelt, which we, we opposed, and uh, then back to Tring tomorrow. So it's all Greenbelt. And uh, Sasha had some good news, didn't he? Uh, but Indeed. we'll talk about that at the next episode. What am I drinking? Um, bitter Inside. That's not how I'm feeling. It's just how cold I am, having been on the M6 and the M5. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, good to see you, Chris. And Paul, oh, how are you doing? I, I have literally just walked out of an inquiry 30 seconds ago from <laughs> next door uh, in Chippenham Town Hall. Uh, because of this ra rather bizarre show that we're on, I have just also taken my off. Too much information. Edit, edit that out, Rob. <laughs> this is a sock from uh, Manor House uh, Hotel in Castle Coombe, which is where I spent the week, which is also where um, uh, Dr. Doolittle was filmed. 
uh, many, many years ago, and uh, you could talk to the animals. And their motto happens to be a lion, so I've got a little sock with a lion on that I bought from the last night, having discovered that their motto, the motif was so was uh, socks. So thank you, Sue. I've still absolutely no idea why I bought a sock, bought a sock, sorry, two socks, um, and why I've just had to show my foot in public. So I'm di dying to know the answers to this. Yeah. Spacingly, the wiggle generally songs come in pairs, Paul. Uh, now, Sasha's just pre recorded his segment because he's skiing um, in a different time zone. And um, as Mary said, I'm at Heath, I'm about to head over to Australia for um, John Lytton KC, another planning barrister's wedding in uh, near Brisbane, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I am drinking a Negroni because it's holiday time after about three months of working seven days a week. I haven't yet had the chance to change into my uh, very bright, uh, almost brighter than yours, I think, Mary, flight socks, but these will be um, um, causing my fellow passengers to spare later on. Um, now, without further ado, um, Paul, I think you're first up, and you're going to tell us about a peel decision in Maidstone. Yeah, there's nothing like um, going straight into it, is there? Not, not taking a breath or anything, Charlie, despite the memo saying, uh, I've only just walked out of inquiry. So, without even... <laughs> Sorry, I didn't see that one. <laughs> Zen. I'm Zen now. So this case, sorry, I need to put my glasses on so I can read it. So this is a decision um, of the Court of Appeal on the 22nd of February um, involving um, the Crown on the application of Kinnersley against Maiden, Maidstone Borough Council and Dixon. Uh, Kinnersley and Dixon are neighbours. Uh, Dixon uh, owns a couple of barns with a walled garden associated with the two barns, which are associated with some sort of recording studio. Kinnersley owns the listed building that the wall guard was originally associated with, but isn't anymore. It's associated with the two barns. And they're plainly are really, really close friends and close neighbours, and that's that's what the United Kingdom runs on. Well, they came before the courts when they were arguing about the fact that Mr. Dixon had sought and secured planning permission for the conversion of the two barns and also the separation of the of two parts of the wall garden into two, so as to create essentially two residential uh, dwellings in the countryside, close to the listed building. There had been a previous application to the High Court uh, for an earlier version of this particular permission, which had been quashed because of issues of listed building, but don't worry in relation to that. This one came before the court for a really, really diddy little issue involving the interpretation of a single part of a single policy, which is DM5 of the local plan, and it raised an issue which uh, Logistice Lewis, who gave the principal judgment, I should say, I can should have done my back when Logistice Lewis is mentioned in any case, not because uh, he's a difficult judge, he's far from me, he's an absolutely lovely judge, but he was my director of studies at Cambridge and terrifies the life out of me because it feels like he's telling me off whenever he speaks to me. Um, but this was a case about the meaning of the word site um, within the policy. In other words, when looking at the policy, um, there is a, a, an exclusion in relation to, to so there's a permission in relation to having um, permit development of previously developed land in the countryside and in the town, uh, providing that the site is not of high environmental value. But there's an exclusion in terms of the application of the site in the countryside, so it excludes gardens. So the question is whether or not Mason were right to exclude consideration of the garden when assessing whether or not the site is of high environmental quality because obviously the site isn't previously developed land in terms of the garden it's only in terms of the the housing so um his honor is walden smith um as a as a deputy high court judge concluded that site in the context of the policy did mean the buildings 
but not the garden. Um, the uh, appellant said, no, it should include the whole of the planning applications site. Um, and the local authority said, no, it should just include the buildings. Well, Lord Justice Lewis said, let's just stand back a little bit from this. The sort of thing that he would have said to me uh, at 30 years ago when uh, he failed to teach me any decent law, not because of his inadequacies due to mine. Um, and he said, let's, let's be sensible in relation to this. Um, let's give the word its ordinary and natural meaning. Uh, let's look at the rest of the local plan and see how the word is used in the rest of the local plan. But more importantly, let's look at how what the underlying purpose of it is. What, what exactly is, the, is this getting at? Is it getting at some contrived interpretation about excluding garden from the application of the policy for PDL, whilst also then including garden or excluding garden from environmental quality? And he said, logically, it's about not giving permission, which undermines something for high environmental quality. So look at the planning application site. So for the second time running, it's been remitted back to the local authorities to consider by looking at the totality of it. Why is it of interest? This really did he point in respect to the interpretation of policy. Um, why is it important? It's because really straightforward words in policy uh, are a matter of law and a matter which engaged lawyers, and therefore you have to think about the use of these these words because that's exactly what we do when we look to see whether or not a challenge is applicable. And when you actually look at challenges of this nature, look at the reality behind what's being argued. Is it a pernickety little legal point for the fun of it, or does it have uh, something which seems to go at odds with the, the, the underlying purpose of the policy itself? It's a well-reasoned decision. It's a short decision from the Court of Appeal, and I look forward to no doubt the third attempt of Maidstone to grant permission in relation to this case. Thank you very much, Paul. I shall now agree. You can relax now. Now, um, if you'd said to me this time last week um, the words Bentley Pornsford, I would have thought that was some new luxury SUV. But no, it turns out that it's a parish, um, and they've been in court. And Sasha, by video link, is going to tell us all about it. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon from Colorado. I'm going to deal with an interesting high court case about the composition of committee reports. This was in Worcestershire, and this was a case involving, involving Bentley Pornsford Parish Council. I've probably got the uh, the pronunciation wrong, but I'm going to say Bentley Pornsford and wait for the number of people on comments to say I've got it wrong, but it's in Worcestershire because it involved a challenge by the Parish Council against the grant by two authorities, two local planning authorities, Redditch and Bromsgrove. This was a very large planning application that that effectively went across two administrative borders, Redditch and Bromsgrove, although principal development was in Bromsgrove, as I understand it. And this was a very large planning application for over 2,500 houses, a free-form entry school and a local centre, so obviously a very significant size. And it was effectively the parish council were concerned principally about the traffic consequences of the grant of consent and the fundamental issue that lay before the court was whether the council had properly directed its members when considering to grant planning permission and it's quite interesting that mr justice dove considers the three grounds and in it the first two related specifically to traffic the third ground related to whether there should be a contribution to allow school children to get to school what what the court said and there was a pretty thorough 
examination of the material. I mean, I think there there are two points really important. The first point is that the court said they appreciated hugely the core bundles that had been slimmed down to 250 pages, which is welcome news for all of us, rather than, or which is often the case, thousands of pages. But effectively, what the court decided was that the committee had been properly briefed, properly told about the consequences with a collective knowledge of the EIA, the the transport assessment and the consultation responses of the Highway Authority, Worcestershire County Council, that the members had properly been told the correct information to make a judgment. So Mr Justice Dove did not find in favour of the first two grounds. And in relation to the third ground, which related to the contribution for education, um, for effectively traffic and education to allow the school to the children to get to school, etc. Um, the clear view was taken that that the, again the members had been properly advised. So, unfortunately, the parish council were not successful on all three grounds, and the the application for judicial review was dismissed. So, back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Sasha. Um, I think you did pronounce it right. Um, now, from uh, southwest of Birmingham to southeast of Birmingham and Solihull, um, I'm going to be covering a, a decision. Uh, by Inspector Christina Downs uh, for uh, dismissing an appeal uh, by the MAC group against Solihull uh, Metropolitan Borough Council's refusal of permission for a proposed redevelopment in Shirley for a mixed-use development comprising uh, 111 flats as well as an 84-bed care home and various ancillary commercial uses within uh, what by the time of the appeal was a reduced to six-storey development on a site currently occupied by a predominantly two-storey building on the Stratford Road in the Shirley Town Centre. Um, Inspector Downs noted that the principal drivers for the proposed hydro development were firstly that there was a development right into 13 storeys at Solihull Village to the north of the town centre, and secondly that it was believed the site justified a stand-out landmark building. Uh, and she rejected both of these arguments. She considered the Solihull Village development distinguishable for a variety of reasons, and the site wasn't appropriate for landmark buildings. Quite an interesting discussion in, in the um, decision about the characteristics of a landmark building and where, when a site might be appropriate um, for one. She said, amongst other things, that the landmark is designed to stand out and be different from its surroundings at the southern end of the town centre. The church, the St James the Great Church, performed that function not because of height, but because of the historic value and the age of the church. And she went on to say there was nothing in local policy or guidance to suggest the junction upon which the appeal sites uh, lay. Um, formed or required um, further landmark development and she noted in particular that the, the former HSBC bank building which occupied the actual corner of the block the site itself seems from the description was set back a bit the HSBC building on the actual corner had to be retained uh, and that further exacerbated the unsatisfactory nature of the proposed landmark function of the appeal scheme set back from the HSBC building she considered overall for, for those reasons and, and various others the appeal scheme failed Properly to respond to its context would be too high because the claimed uh, rationale for the Hyde wasn't justified and it would fail to integrate successfully with its town centre location. Although she dismissed um, or rejected allegations by impact of heritage harm on designated heritage assets, allegations of daylight and sunlight and, and other uh, amenity concerns in relation to neighbouring properties, um, notwithstanding those and notwithstanding the significant weight she gave both to markets and affordable housing and housing to the elderly, um, Inspector Downs' view was that 
the harm associated with the height and design of the building and its lack of a proper contextual response would significantly and demonstrably outweigh the benefits uh, in the context of the tilted balance. As I said, it's an interesting decision in terms of discussion of, of landmark functions of, of tall buildings. Um, and it demonstrates also that even in a highly constrained district, which Solihull is, with lots of heritage in the town centre and Greenbelt washed over um, outside settlement boundaries, uh, even a highly constrained district with substantial unmet needs, which the development helped to address, excessive building heights which fail properly to respond to context, risk being a showstopper. I mean, the, the Tower Hamlet's decisions that Satcher was involved in uh, last year are further illustrations of, of that. Um, there was shows up unless there's a convincing design rationale and justification for the for the height. Um, and there's nothing in the inspector's decision, to my mind, which overtly indicates that the Building Beautiful Agenda, um, National Design Guide, etc., uh, made a decisive difference. I, I read the decision as being one which would have been the same a few years ago, um, notwithstanding the agenda. What this does show, it, it's a further decision in, in a sequence of decisions where the design concerns and lack of a proper contextual response have featured featured heavily. Um, it seems to me that what the uh, changes in policy, recent change in policy and direction of travel of the draft uh, framework, consultation framework have done is raise up the agenda. They may not have actually made a difference in terms of the rationale of decisions, but bring higher up the agenda, um, these kinds of issues. And uh, this decision is a further illustration of that and say it's an interesting read um, and um, I commend it to you. Um, so that is uh, our trip to the southern extremities of, of Birmingham, Birmingham suburbia, the Birmingham Commemoration. We're now going up north and Chris is going to tell us about a pin decision called Trafford. So over to you, Chris. Confirm it as well that Sasha got the pronunciation perfectly right. Just to say that site, when I did the Redditch and Bromsgrove local plan, I advised the developer to put their application in to show the deliverability of that site in 2016. And it's getting permission because of highway modelling problems. Peter Goatley's been advising on it and all kinds of issues. So an allocation doesn't mean houses the next day. That's eight years after it got allocated because it's a massive strategic site. Um, so, yeah, I'm talking about a site in Trafford, which I uh, drove through this afternoon, started out my career acting with Jane LaFave up in there, fighting off all the people from King's Chambers who turned up with their garden development. Remember that, Paul? Uh, Roger Lancaster and everybody like that. Uh, anyway, uh, this is an appeal decision um, from uh, Tim Bleak, and um, it's, uh, it's called World of Pets, but it's got nothing to do with pets. It's about housing. And crucially, again, it's a Greenbelt site. Uh, this is a Greenbelt site, which if we look at paragraph eight, we can see is 39% um, previously developed land. So there's a lot of hard standing there. Um, there was some uh, uh, infrastructure, but um, a large part of it was green as well. Now, these are the sites together with draft allocations that actually seem to do well at appeal. And uh, this, is, um, this is a site which is part brownfield part greenfield if we go to paragraphs 24 and 25 um, we can see that the inspector concluded the proposal would erode the gap between hale and timperley the settlements wouldn't physically merge but the space between them would be decreased nevertheless the extent of the development would terminate at a logical and defensible southern boundary that's useful isn't it you're narrowing the gap you've got accusations of coalescence 
But if you've got a good, strong, defensible boundary, that would seem a more logical place to go to. And this is because, in many respects, the appeal site, when viewed on the ground, is seen as part of the settlement of Timperley. This is especially so when considering the extent of development to the west of the appeal site, which, although outside the Greenbelt, is also limited by Timperley Brook. And uh, his conclusion on the harm to the purposes was that the appeal scheme would cumulatively have a moderate adverse impact on the purpose of including land in the Greenbelt, um, and uh, it didn't gain support from the local plan policy because the local plan policy, I don't think, dealt with very special circumstances. So there was only limited, well, moderate harm in terms of the purposes, but of course, because the MPPF says gives substantial weight to any harm in the Greenbelt, the harm to the Greenbelt collectively was was given very substantial weight. Um, now, that might have been seen as a difficulty, but if we go to paragraphs 28 and 29... We can see, well, no, another advantage was that the uh, because Places for Everybody hasn't been adopted yet, that fingers crossed that's gone well, we're getting to the end of that, um, that uh, the the existing plan in Trafford is out of date, out of date housing numbers. We know this is always the case, so the inspector took the view that L1 at 29, policy L1, the strategy is out of date and should be afforded limited weight. But is that enough to win the appeal? Well, um, the inspector, if we go to paragraph uh, 45 we can see that the appeal site is allocated in the emerging places for everyone now it's not the whole allocation it's just part of it but obviously that is inevitably going to help a proposal if it's part of a draft allocation and what is well now a well advanced plan subject to the inspector's reporting looking at the benefits paragraph 55 we can see that um uh well actually that actually Aside from the benefits, this is a really important paragraph. Everybody knows there's two, well, there's one written ministerial statement, a couple of statements by ministers in Parliament, but a written ministerial statement saying that unmet housing need is unlikely to clearly outweigh the harms of the Greenbelt and any other harm to establish very special circumstances, which in plain English just means housing need alone or unmet housing need won't get you home on a very special circumstance case. Now, that hasn't made its way into the MPPF, even though it was issued as a written ministerial statement in 2015. So the inspector, interestingly, reaches the conclusion it give it limited weight for that reason. There's been no decision or no appetite to put that in the MPPF itself. So maybe you can just get home on, on housing. The reality is, though, of course, every site is different. Sites are well contained. This is part PDL, and collectively they're capable of being benefits which amount to very special circumstances to outweigh the harm just looking briefly at some of the benefits though if we may um paragraph 57 45 percent affordable homes that was a lot of green belt sites deliver because of course there's inflated uh house prices and land values in the green belt so that's what you get even in manchester you're getting 45 percent affordable homes um, and that's a policy compliant level because actually timperley as paul can attest Plenty of barristers live in there. Um, it's a it's a high value area, and that's why it was able to deliver such a high percentage. If we go to paragraph 50, uh, 62, sorry, um, there's the economic benefits for those that don't know. The Home Builders Federation has a calculator to estimate the benefits in terms of jobs, and just from this relatively modest or medium sized proposal, three million pounds of economic benefits in terms of local spend. Well, they do like uh, Waitrose down in Timberley, don't they, Paul? 
Um, and then um, in terms of <laughs> Brown, sorry, isn't it? It's Brown's Waitrose of the North. And then biodiversity, this is quite interesting. Uh, it was just 10%. Um, you don't need to achieve 10% unless it's in the development plan. The legislation hasn't come in place yet. In, but even that 10% gain was seen to be um, of value because, as the inspector puts it, the, the biodiversity, there's a pressing need to improve biodiversity. Uh, and I thought that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, there's a pressing need for houses. There's a pressing need to deal with biodiversity. So that gets some weight in the balance as well. Finally then, paragraphs 85 and 86, what's the overall view? Well, the appeal scheme would assist in addressing the acute and persistent housing supply shortfall and would deliver affordable housing. In fairness to Trafford, they have been seen to be making a real effort to try and overcome the problem, but there are limited opportunities in brownfield sites left in uh, in Trafford after all that development that Paul and his colleagues were doing in the early 2000s. And then finally, uh, 86, protecting the Greenbelt is a matter of importance, um, uh, but I've considered the proposal, and in this instance, the identified harm would be clearly outweighed by other considerations, and therefore, very special circumstances was made out. Um, an interesting case, it reaffirms that you are probably on safe territory if you've got either previously developed in the previously developed land in the site in the site or you've got um, a draft allocation and in this case it was both well done to the developers team that included David Manley and um, uh, we can see um, that uh, town legal were involved as well um, so well done to the team and that's a good another green belt result thanks Biff um, ne next time you have an inquiry in the north um Mention, mention in your opening that you want to pop down to Brown's, the, the well-known northern department store, and see how you get on. Uh, excuse me. Oh. <laughs> cool. Over to you uh, to introduce our esteemed guests and commence our interview. Thank you very much, Sue. What a pleasure it is to have you on the show. And I mean, um, what a great week to have a a, a, a powerful woman too on have we got planning news for you so I'm really delighted so let me just sort of introduce you um, and um, so that our audience can appreciate just really what you've achieved so you have a Bachelor of Science Honours degree in Urban Land Economics which you gained from Sheffield then you went on and did a post-grad uh, diploma in town planning from Sunderland you are now a fellow of the Royal Town Planning Institute and obviously now president, but you also are a director of your own consultant consultancy, Suebridge Consulting uh, Limited. I'm going to start at the beginning of your career. You, you began, as I understand it, at Tyne and Weir County Council in Minerals and Waste. Then you took some maternity leave, but then you came back and you resumed working at Newcastle City Council, where you became a senior planning officer. Then you decided to switch to the private sector, and that culminated in you working for some 12 years for Bellway Homes, rising to become a divisional director of planning and development. Now, now some people at that point might have thought, that, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd achieved enough, but not for you. You then left and went on to become head of planning at Northampton Borough Council, um, a post you held for um, some six years. And 
again, some people might have thought that that would have been a, a lifetime achievement, but then you decided to set up your own consultancy and you combine that with a lot of work, it seems to me, in different roles for the RTPI. You were elected to the General Assembly in 2015. You became a trustee of the RTPI, subsequently becoming chair of the board, a post you've held um, since July 2019. And in 21, you became the vice president, uh, whilst continuing to be the chair. And I mean, I'm bound to say that as chair, you have achieved a great deal. You've overseen a major review of governance. Not sexy, but really important, actually. Uh, and you've driven significant investment into the London office, as well as growing the membership, which now stands at 27,000-odd. So, I mean, your skills, to name but a few, include project management, writing policy, local government, stakeholder engagement, the public sector, sustainable development, change management, urban and development planning, land use planning, and spatial planning. I mean, a lady of many talents. So, so welcome. <laughs> well, it's very inspiring. It's very important and inspiring for uh, young people listening to this show to realise that um, you can, you can, you can have a successful career. You can, and I think what's really interesting about your career is the combination of public and private sector roles. Um, yes. So, I salute you in in every sense of the word. So, now my questions, if I may. When did you first join the RTPI and why? Well, I suppose it's confession time, really, because uh, I didn't actually join until 2008. Wow. Um, yeah, quite well um, into your career. Very well into my career. Um, I'll, I'll be quite honest, the RTPI, was it anything that appealed to me? At the time, I thought it was very clicky. And it was definitely something at an old boys club. Um, so uh, why, Sue, why, Sue, should people who are not members now join? You join for two reasons. If you think it's not for you for the same sort of reason as I did, there's only one way you can effect change, and that is from within. And I was kicked around by quite a few people to totally stop moaning join and be the change you want to be, basically. The other reason, um, the other reason I joined was because the RTPI was changing. Uh, Trudy Elliott was, became senior, yeah. which was a huge step. The first woman uh, appointed as the chief officer for the RTPI. Um, and why? Why would anybody want to join? It's an amazing organization, actually. Um, the CPD offer is fantastic. You've got really good networking opportunities, working um, and, and meeting um, some really interesting colleagues. You've got an organization which is working very hard to increase its diversity. Uh, and social inclusion, and also its social responsibility. Uh, we were the first um, built environment profession to have a climate change action plan for our own purposes. Well, that's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, and also, most importantly, I think, is that we've got a global reputation for professionalism and ethics. 
and we have a code of conduct which is enforced through the RTPI. Um, through our Royal Charter, we are a self-regulating um, institute and we work to the high, high standards and the Royal Town Planning Institute nurtures and we do have a program called Nurture. We nurture our members through every stage of their professional career. Mm, excellent. Okay. Next question. Would you recommend your career as a, as a town planner to your 21-year-old self today? Oh, absolutely. I've had an absolute ball. <laughs> I've enjoyed every minute of it. Which is one of the reasons I don't retire because I you love it so much. What else yeah. do I do? You know. Yeah. Um, I've had the honour and privilege to work with some uh, amazing and exceptional planners and other built environment professionals, including uh, people on the legal side. Um, I've um, brought forward some fantastic schemes. And I've also refused some pretty dreadful ones, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, at, at the end of the day, I think planners actually really do good in, in, in society. And uh, you get the feeling of immense satisfaction and fulfillment it, when it comes to seeing the schemes that you've brought forward, um, that you've master planned with your team of consultants and experts. Um, you've taken it through planning. It's been built and you can actually see your master plan in 3D. That is an amazing thing to see people living in the houses, people going to the shops in the local centre that you provided for, people sending their kids to the schools. Mm. It's just amazing. And yes. for anybody who is interested, or even if you're only just mildly curious about a degree, about a career in planning, um, there is a really good interactive website called um, Planning the World. Um, if you put that in your browser, um, you can get onto that and have a look at the opportunities that are open um, to planners and people want Thank to you. a career. Thank you, Sue. Um, okay, next I want to just talk to you about your role as president this year and ask you what is your main focus as president I'm, I'm seeing a profession that I love, um, and you, you can probably tell how much I enjoy um, the work that I do. I, and the profession is struggling uh, under the weight of being asked to do so much more for so much less. Um, my theme is that we need more resources and we need more planners. And it's not just a UK problem. Mm. This is a global issue that there are simply not enough planners to deal with the challenges that we face today. Um, at the same time as that, we also need to work hard to improve our image uh, with the public and with decision makers. Um, I, I'm, I'm upset that planning is seen as a blocker rather than an enabler. And that is something that we really do have to work on um, mm -hmm. and the RTPI is working very hard on changing that perception of the planning system. And as I go around the um, nations and regions this year, I'll, I will be looking to publicise some of the great work that is being done um, around uh, the, uh, the nations and regions um, and 
putting that forward as best practice. Excellent. So how do planners cope with the stress of being in such an underfunded and undervalued profession? Well, I think that there was a lot of um, tension around this issue and there's um, th th it was very anecdotal. But we've just published, we published in January, uh, the results of the big conversation in Wales, um, which has taken place over the back end of 2022. And it has evidenced what we know and what we have known for some time, that budget cuts across all the nations have resulted in a planning service, which is both under-resourced and undervalued. Um, I can't comment how individuals cope with that stress, obviously, but the RTPI is well aware of the problem. Uh, and um, the Planner magazine also has done a survey, which we expect to be published in a couple of weeks, which we are anticipating will bear out the results um, of the Wales study for, for the rest of the UK. Um, but the RTPI is working. Um, to help its members, and I launched uh, a free help and wellbeing legal um, and helplines um, in January, and that is in addition to the health and wellbeing resources that are available on the website. And not only are we working to support the planners that we've already got, but we're also working to increase the supply of mm. planners um, through. The apprenticeship program, which is becoming absolutely the way, in my view, to enter the profession um, through our bursaries and also campaigning to have planning put on the shortage occupation list so that it's easier to get visas. Um, and awareness is becoming, um, DLUC are aware of the issue uh, as well, and we're, we're talking to them about about it, which brings me on to planning application fees and the need for ring fencing um, to make sure that those resources go straight back into planning services. In fact, I would say all planning application mm -hmm. fees, not just the increase, should go to um, to improving the resources in planning. Yeah. So, so in a way, that's a cry, that's a sort of cry from the heart. There's a consultation going on. Um, in relation to the increase of, of fees. And so really, um, we need everybody to respond on the point that there's a ring fencing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, got that. Um, my next topic, and we can come back perhaps if we have some time to come back to some of the uh, comments that are coming in, but I, I want to, you've spoken, I've, I listened to your in, uh, very inspiring inaugural speech. Um, and you, I know you've spoken about bullying and intimidation that the professional planners um, have to put up with from councillors and indeed members of the public. Um, what is, do you think, the best way to tone down the rhetoric uh, and get get us all working more collaboratively? I think let's deal with the, uh, the issue of elected members first. Um, I've worked with some amazing dedicated um, councillors, local members and community leaders. And I, I believe that politicians at all level actually do go in to do good um, mm. and it goes in to do bad. Um, but we need to look at where it goes wrong 
uh, and where why respect drains away on both sides of the equation. Um, I think part of the problem is the lack of understanding between the different roles of the paid service, your officers, and the democratically elected councillors. And I'm um, a very strong advocate of compulsory training for any councillor who sits on a regulatory uh, body, particularly planning committees. You should have the right training in order to be a, let you do the best job that you can. Members need to understand the consequences of their decisions and how to make them properly. Um, even if they're going against the advice of their officers, it needs to be done properly. Emotions can run high. Um, they can be triggered by even the most, the smallest development proposals. When I was doing DM, some of the, the biggest and most controversial things that I dealt with were minute household extensions can be really controversial. Um, and I think it's important that emotions are taken out of the equation. Um, it's training, actually. It boils down to proper, good, first-class training. Uh, and also, it's important that actually councillors own the decisions that they're making. Uh, and that comes down to a real engagement, I think, in the local plan process so that they own their local plans. Um, uh, and that, again, takes training, time, resources. But officers have got to be enabled to work with their councillors to take them on that journey. I think for members of the public, on the other hand, um, planning can be a very scary and intimidating process. Uh, nobody likes change, do they, in their neighbourhoods? Um, and it also, this comes down to what I was saying earlier about public perception and public perception of development. And people don't understand that public perception has positive, sorry, that development has positive benefits. We've just got to look at that appeal decision just now about how much benefit to the economy building houses brings. And, and that needs to be up front and center in um, engagement with communities. But it doesn't excuse bad behavior. Mm. And we mustn't excuse bad behavior. Um, and it is incumbent on councillors, councils, to make sure that their staff are safe. And behaviour like we have seen coming out of some planning committees is absolutely unacceptable and we need to call it out. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, agreed. Now, one of the things you are advocating is the great debate. Um, and I know that um, you want to stimulate um, a debate with your members and you want that to be entirely positive. Yes. Um, what are, and, and I'm, I've understood that you're planning four great debates what what are your what are your the um the topics um, first two, I, I think you've settled on the first two topics what are they i have settled on the first two topics the first one will be in march where the general assembly um will will meet in uh, birmingham um this year the general assembly meets in birmingham and in manchester and in london we we're opening it up oh, oh, slightly wider around the country. 
Um, and the debates, I want the debates to look at smarter ways of doing it to be positive. Um, I don't want it to be the great whinge. I think it's important that we don't whinge about the problems that yeah. we need to be looking at positive solutions. So the first one, we'll be looking at strategic planning and how we can do it better. Um, and I'll, I'll touch slightly on that. But there's so much potential potentially going on with strategic planning, with the voluntary um, strategic plans that, that, are, that are outlined in the lab. Um, and in Wales and Scotland, they are doing strategic planning. They are both doing it differently um, and they're doing it very differently to how we're looking at it in England. So I think that there is a big debate to have about, um, about how we can do strategic planning. Mm. The second topic, which will be in Manchester in June, will be on um, digital planning and the potential for use of AI in planning, see if we can better harness that. My concern is that although it's high on the government agenda, um, I think it's something that we as a profession should be getting on the front foot about because if we don't shape the debate, the debate will shape us. And I think that would be quite damaging actually. So I think that is quite an interesting topic and um, we'll see how that one pans out. I think, I mean, the digitalization of planning is, is coming. It is coming. And but... um, uh, it, it's not going to be perfect, but um, it's, it's, a, a, um, it, it's, it's very interesting um, to see how things will um, pan out, as it were. Okay, my next question is about um, climate adaption of the existing built development and mitigation mm -hmm. or new development because you're advocating a national framework, a holistic approach um, to this, as I understood um, your inaugural speech. So, right. I, I, I mean, what, what, what prospect do you think that the government is going to deliver on a national framework which which focuses on the adaption of the existing built environment as well as new development mitigation for new development well the government has to produce its strategy by the end of the month just like the high court has spoken and the government didn't challenge the high court's um, decision um so they've got until the 31st of march um to produce their strategy um, am I hopeful? Well, at present, we've got a plethora of, in, of different initiatives, none of which are joined up, um, and they're all over the place. But I have read the report of Chris Skidmore, MP, is the net zero czar, um, and his report, Mission Zero, which I commend to anybody to read, actually, because it's a re uh, not only is it an easy read, but it's very, very interesting. Uh, and he highlights that the common message that he's got from everybody that he's worked with on this report is the need for certainty, clarity, consistency, mm -hmm. and actually for the government to produce a long-term plan, mm -hmm. a stable investment plan for how we're going to get to uh, net zero by 2050, which is their obligation under, under the law. So he set out 10 priority missions in his report. Um, 
And looking at that planet, he sees planning has got a huge role to play in the proper implementation uh, of those missions. Um, and he has actually called for the NPPF to be aligned more closely with um, climate change and adaptation. Will it be published at the end of the month? Well, we'll wait and see. We haven't got long to wait, have we? Um, yes. But it's urgent and there's no time. There's no time left for procrastination. We really, really have to know how, when, where, and how we're going to get there. And, and the government has got to do it. They've got to. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, thank you so much for asking my questions. I'm just going to open it out, open it out a bit. Chris, you have a question. What's your question? Sue. Sue, thank you very much, uh, Mary. Just to say, Sue, uh, I love your honesty about some of these uh, these issues and some of the comments you're making earlier. And um, my sister's a planning officer. I recognise entirely what you're talking about. Pressure from councillors and pressure from the public. And there's not always enough respect there. Uh, should respect the profession completely. My question is to take you back to when you started uh, at a house builder. You started at uh, Bellway. And um, uh, after you'd been in local authority, it was International Women's Day yesterday. As a young woman, how difficult was it going into a house builder and that environment? And how much do you think that has now changed? Well, Chris, in, in my early 20s, my very early 20s, when I was first um, qualified, um, I worked in minerals and waste disposal in development management. Um, house builders and construction workers are pussycats compared to open cast coal operators and quarrymen. I'll tell you that for nothing. Um, and that, when you have to go on site and you tell them to rip out the subsoil, take it all off, and put it all back again because they haven't done it properly, then you come in for for some interesting conversations. Um, I learned very quickly actually there that you've got to stick up for yourself and you know you've you've got. If, if you've got a job to do, you've got to go out, you've got to do the job. Um, but on a more serious note, perhaps um, it, it is challenging. It was challenging, very challenging going into the house building uh, industry. But now it's a completely different world, absolutely completely different. Um, there's still a lot to do, but the gender split for young planners coming through is about 50-50 students now between men and women. But there are other issues that have to be tackled about increasing diversity in the profession. Hmm. Where I particularly want to draw attention to, though, um, looking at it in the day after National um, International Women's Day, is the lack of women in the boardroom in both planning consultancies and in the construction house building companies. Um, there are, of course, a couple of notable exceptions. But there are very few women at the top table, uh, and that has got to change. Um, and it is a proven fact that diversity in the boardroom leads to better decision-making. Mm -hmm. So that is something else that um, perhaps uh, I can uh, draw attention to as I go through the course of the year. I think, to be fair to Bellway, um, those of us who work with Bellway know that certainly as far as the planners are concerned, the team is probably 50-50, but it's other parts of the construction industry the need to adapt more than planning, I think. Um, but that's beyond the RTPI's yeah, yeah. reach. It, it, yeah. it, it's an industry-wide issue. It's not just planning, no. But you look at the top 
tables of most of our major planning consultancies, there's not a huge number of women on there. Good point. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Mary. Thank you very much, Chris. Paul, what's your question? So, Sue, it, it's a, a joy to be able to uh, speak to you in relation to something positive involving the planning bar. So there's, there's a, a trumpet that I need to blow, but it's also a trumpet that, that's, that, that you need to blow for the RTPI. So three of the panellists are members of the, the executive board, the executive committee of the Planning and Environmental Bar Association, our own little trade union for the planning bar. Um, and last year, we came together as an organisation with Advocate, who are the Bar Council's pro bono body, for those of us who haven't had a classical education, as in acting for nothing body, um, together with Planning Aid England, which is uh, the RTPI's uh, pro bono body, um, to identify a body of experts in planning law to assist in the work of Planning Aid England, um, so to help in you know, offering free advice, essentially. So can you tell us what Planning Aid is? Because there's not just Planning Aid England. How important it is viewed by the RTPI and by you as the president, and how useful do you anticipate having a well of free legal advice in planning law to draw from? Well, Planning Aid England's 50 this year. Wow. Uh, planning Aid Scotland, which is a separate charity, is 30 this year. And there are also separate um, Planning Aid charities in um, Wales, Northern Ireland and in London. Um, what do they do? They organise free, they, sorry, they, they offer free independent and professional advice on planning issues and empower, their, their aim is to empower local communities to engage with the planning process and to influence decisions that affect their local area. That's the main objective of the planning aid issue. And um, I think that it's built on, on, on the principle that everybody should be able to access planning um, uh, and not everybody can afford to employ planning consultants and, and other advisors. I'm not sure how many volunteers there are altogether um, working planning aid, but in England there's about 350 and in England you have to be a member of the RTPI um, to work in planning aid. And in Scotland, there's about 400 um, planners engaged in um, planning aid. So I think that tells you that it is a really important activity. And if anybody doesn't know what, you know, in detail what planning aid does or is interested in getting involved, then there's a really good, there are really good websites there. Um, just put Planning Aid England or Planning Aid Scotland into the website, uh, um, into the browser, and, and you can see a lot more information. Um, the fact that you're joining with us, I think, is brilliant. I do think that a while ago, many years ago, um, young barristers used to um, come along uh, and help in Planning Aid. And I think it's really interesting for young planners young barristers and solicitors to get together on a pro bono basis yes. and, learn to, and learn from each other those skills yes. you need um, in that. What is she doing? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get a bit of light on the subject. Oh, I you're, see. Quite, you're quite right, Sue. Look, it, it's a great thing for, um, for, for young lawyers to uh, participate. It, it gives you an, you know, it, it's, it's a very good um, insight into the planning uh, system. Yeah, you've got to track. Well, she was actually. Where, you? 
what 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 Mary was actually doing is that she's aware that the Eurovision uh, song uh, <laughs> has been chosen for our entry uh, in Liverpool for later on in the year. So I think Mary's just dancing <laughs> along to that in the background. Sorry. About that. <laughs> completely mad <laughs> oh yeah we are all bonkers <laughs> thank you and thank you that's really helpful thank you and strongly and, and you know involved. great great stuff the more the merrier really excellent and and finally talking of bonkers charlie uh, what's your question <laughs> well i was going to ask about rcipi's work in the sphere of nutrients but given the um devastating bombardment of ukraine today where i have family i'm going to change my question soon because um, once this terrible war in Ukraine is over, as I hope it will and believe it will be this year, there's a massive, massive rebuilding um, program ahead. It will probably last uh, the rest of all of our lives. Um, and fundamental to that is going to be master planning and planning. Um, and, and so I'm interested to know what, um, what role either is the RTPI playing or could the RTPI play in relation to that, either in terms of training up Ukrainians so that they can um, contribute themselves um, to uh, planning and master planning in Ukraine and rebuilding the country, uh, or indeed um, direct work. I mean, just to know what you think um, Arctic Guide could do, always doing. I think you've actually got there before you, Charlie, because um, right from the very beginning, um, we knew that there was going to be an issue of rebuilding um, and recovery. Uh, Victoria Hills, our, our CEO, has already reached out um, to various organisations in the Ukraine uh, and um, offering um, help. And I do believe that um, there are a couple of planners who came over here um, and we're, we're um, helping them already. But yes, it's going to be a big job. I, I'm chairing the you know, Global Planners Network uh, this year. And um, I'm sure that that will be on the agenda at some point. Thank you. It, it is. It is, and it's not. I know Ukraine is particular because of the war, but there's also the real issues of the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey. Mm, indeed. Um, and those poor people, you know, we've got to think about them and help them as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, good on you for that interesting suggestion by KRTBI opening a branch in Ukraine. Post post war, interesting idea. But uh, thank you, thank you for all the work that RCBI is doing in that respect. Thank you very much, Charlie, for your question. And uh, Sue, thank you so much. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. And and we wish you um, well in your year ahead. And we will look forward to hearing your your debates um, and the outcome, frankly, of of, of those debates. Um, so thank you very much, Charlie. Back to you. Thank you, Mary. A, a huge thank you, Sue, for me too. And thank you, Mary, for a fascinating interview. Um, thank you, dear viewers. We will see you again in two weeks' time. And until then, good night. And I'm going to go get my didgeridoo out now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Sue. Oh, <laughs>